name's Ari, and I am our partner manager here at MedCurity. Um, I have the privilege of working alongside our incredible partners um, in support of their members or clients, um, depending on how they support those groups. And one of those main areas is education. So we know there's a lot of information thrown at you day in and day out, especially this past year and with the year in cybersecurity that we've been having. So it's really important, and we've taken it upon ourselves to make the information digestible for you and easily accessible. So moving forward in the future, if there are any other topics that you would find helpful or would be of extra interest, please let us know because that's something we can tailor to our audience. All right. Now, done with the housekeeping, let's jump into some of the exciting content. Um, if you were able to join last month's webinar, a quick recap, we covered what your actual requirements are under HIPAA when it comes to your security risk analysis, your risk management plan, as well as the necessity of managing your business associates, um, along with the details of your agreement content and anyone who touches patient information. So we have that recording on hand. If you do want that background on the first half of HIPAA compliance requirements, we're happy to pass that along. But now we want to cover the second half, which is why we've split it up into two webinars. There's a lot of information to go over. Um, so we will be covering policies and procedures as well as your employee HIPAA training today. Just like last month, we have the wonderful Amanda Hepper, who is our president and co-founder here at MedCurity. Her incredible experience in the healthcare industry consulting on these specific issues allows her to confidently speak to what we're seeing from the government level. On the federal level, we see them enforcing quite a few um, areas, and one of the main areas of focus comes down to policy. So that's why we wanted to give this um, a big emphasis. Amanda's experience, we're really excited to hear her speak to these. And so with that, Amanda, for those who weren't able to make it last month, and who are new this month, could you introduce yourself and jump into some of the background of HIPAA? I'd be delighted to, Ari. Thank you so much. Um, so I have a background in healthcare and technology, 20 years or so, and have worked with uh, practices and hospitals all over the United States. And we started MedCurity a few years ago because we were conducting security risk assessments and saw some of the uh, inefficiencies and in tools being used and um, some of the reports being handed off to our um, clients. And so we wanted to solve that problem. So that's why we created MedCurity. So I'm always, always delighted to share about HIPAA and especially round two of this education series. So for those that were on last month's webinar, you'll recognize the HIPAA overview, but hopefully this free review is helpful. So let's get started. So the security and privacy rules have about 100 specific standards that are covered in the Code of Federal Regulations. While it's complex, there's also flexibility, which can make it a bit more onerous to understand and even to implement. So my goal in this session is to break HIPAA down into understandable bites to specifically enable folks and practices like you all that wear so many hats with the ability to develop and or strengthen your HIPAA compliance programs. So I'm going to provide a brief overview, dispel some myths, and then we'll dive into more specifics. As Ari mentioned last month, we covered the security risk assessments and business associate agreements. So today we'll dive into security and privacy policies as well as HIPAA training. So HIPAA stands for the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. It is a federal law that was signed in August of 96. 
it put into place, it was put into place so that workers could carry forward insurance and healthcare rights in between jobs. So now, as you know, it's best known for protecting the privacy of patients and ensuring patient data is appropriately secured. With those requirements added by the HIPAA privacy rule and security rule of 2000 and 2003, the requirement for notifying individuals of a breach of their health information was introduced in the breach notification rule in 09. Also in 09, HIPAA via the HITECH Act, you might know it as meaningful use, was used to encourage the healthcare industry to move toward electronic health records and there was incentives along with that. That led to additional concerns over unauthorized disclosures of PHI resulting in further privacy and security regulations in 2013 and that year it also expanded the responsibility of business associates. So HHS administers HIPAA and it is enforced by the Office of Civil Rights. Excellent. Thank you, Amanda. I know just understanding where um, HIPAA came from and why it was implemented and all the different levels of adjustment from then. And it's really helpful with the context that we're going to shape moving forward. And I think something we did in our last webinar is really understanding what protected health information is at its core. Um, and I think we should do it again just because repetition helps in learning as well as it'll give us an awesome framework to navigate what privacy and security truly is in our practices. Awesome. So PHI, as I shared last time, is any health information that can be linked to and identify a specific person. It only refers to information on patients or health plan subscribers and includes one or more of these 18 identifiers you see on the screen. The one myth I want to quickly dispel is that it is not a HIPAA violation to call out a patient in a waiting room by name as long as no health information is being disclosed. Um, it is not permitted to call a patient out by name and also state a health condition or any other health information. So don't say, Mrs. Smith, please come to room 10 for your COVID test. I always appreciate the examples, Amanda, especially relevant ones, things that we um, are seeing every day or hearing about in our line of work. But um, understanding what patient health information and protected health information truly is really gives us um, a great framework as we build out what policies are in terms of these practices. So moving on into the context of understanding all of this, can you explain um, who is a covered entity or who is a business associate and really why do we have to comply with these laws? Certainly. It's good to know who, who what, you, what entities have to comply with HIPAA, right? So if you don't have to, then you don't have to mess with it. So covered entities are pretty confident, everyone on this call, um, that are providers or represent practices that conduct healthcare transactions electronically. So it's doctors, clinics, psychologists, dentists, chiropractors, nursing homes, pharmacies, all of those plus additional ones. And a health plan is any plan that pays the cost of healthcare, for which we're thankful. Healthcare clearinghouses convert health information from non-standard formats into HIPAA standard formats or vice versa. And a business associate is a person or entity that performs certain functions or activities involving access, use or disclosure of PHI on behalf of or provide services to a covered entity. Perfect. Thank you. And so something we also covered in the last webinar were safeguards. Uh, but I think in light of policies and training being the topic now, having this in the forefront of our minds gives us wonderful context, right? So if you don't mind, Amanda, can you explain um, 
the safeguards and why these are important from a policy standpoint? Certainly. A major goal of the privacy rule is to assure that individuals' health information is properly protected while allowing the flow of health information needed to provide high quality health. So the rule strikes a nice balance permitting use of information while also protecting the privacy of the patients for whom you are caring. The security rule protects a subset of the information covered by the privacy rule, namely electronic protected health information. There's three safeguards in the security rule. The administrative safeguard lays a foundation for compliance with policies and procedures. You want to have those that are in line with the HIPAA regulations and reflect your practices and then have evidence that you are doing what the policies and procedures direct. I have a background in project management. In project management, you have a plan, you execute on the plan, and you adjust as needed, incorporating lessons learned, documenting progress, and continuing to move forward. It is a very similar process with policy management and the administrative safeguard. Technical safeguards are the technology, policies and procedures and practices that protect PHI and control access to it. In this case, the security rule is tech neutral, therefore no specific requirements for the specific types of technology to implement are identified. It allows you to use any security measures to reasonably and appropriately implement HIPAA. For instance, it's a requirement to encrypt laptops, but the security rule does not tell you which specific encryption technology to use. And then physical safeguards really are what they say, the physical measures put in place to protect electronic information systems and the related buildings and equipment from natural and environmental hazards and unauthorized access. So the standards are another line of defense for protecting electronic protected health information. Thank you for so succinctly covering all those different safeguards. I think it's easy to get caught up in one or the other, but remembering that this is a holistic picture of your organization is really important when it comes to especially policy development and training. So thank you for covering that. Similar to most things when it comes to HIPAA, we hear all the time um, statements or common misconceptions that just truly aren't accurate. And so we did want to take the time to clear the air on some of those. Um, Amanda, who better to have speak to it than Amanda, who's been in the field and interacted with this so often. Um, could you share a couple of things that you do here in the field and take the time to debunk them? I'd be delighted to again. Um, so in the field, as part of the security risk assessment, you do a policy review. So you wanna make sure that policies are in line with the security and privacy safeguards and um, identify potential gaps. So one thing that I've seen are, are templates being used wholesale, meaning um, a set of templates may be adopted by an organization and they simply replace their name with, um, with another, right? They replace another entity's name with their name. That's not recommended. Um, they should be tailored and reasonable and appropriate for your specific practice. Obviously, a hospital's policies and procedures will be much different than the small practices or business associates. That said, they can be the perfect place to start if you can customize them for the unique needs of your practice. They need to be reasonable and appropriate. You don't want overkill. You want them to be attainable for your organization. I've seen hospitals commit every department to have their own set of HIPAA policies. Perhaps that's reasonable appropriate for a huge hospital system, or perhaps not, even in that case. 
So we recommend an annual policy review as regulations change, as do practices and technology, um, as well as people. Plus, it's simply a good policy management to keep them current and to be reminded of what, about what your policies say and to update them accordingly. And regarding a notice of privacy practices, it's a great place to start, but you need to consider access to information, what steps your practices will go through to provide PHI to patients, designated record sets, how to account for uses and disclosures, and you really want to communicate to your staff how they'll go about doing this, and so you need more than just an NPP. Great. Thank you, Amanda. I know there are, there are often a lot of voices around the topic of HIPAA and what policy management or deficient policy management is. And so taking the time to really speak to things that we see or might think um, is accurate HIPAA compliance is really helpful, especially um, on the privacy side of things. I know that's an area we see a gap in a lot of the time. Um, but ultimately, context is everything. So now that the framework is built around policies and why they're required and what their purpose is, where do we begin to tackle these concepts? Great place to start. So what we recommend is appoint a team to be responsible uh, to review these policies, to develop them, and appoint a compliance team. And these can be one in the same team, actually. Um, you want them made up of key personnel whose responsibility it is to identify areas of concern within your organization and act as a first line of defense in enhancing your privacy and security posture. We recommend that your security officer, privacy officer, and an IT point of contact at a minimum be a part of these teams and recommend that they are assigned to their positions by the practice administrator or CEO so that they are endorsed by them and everybody will know that. You want to set a meeting frequency cadence for this team, at least quarterly, because at that meeting, they can oversee your policies, share current concerns, talk about how to address those, and review internal system audits. So I am all about efficiencies and right-sizing with policies. They need to be evaluated against the privacy and security safeguards and standards, all of them. That said, they don't need to be over, overly burdensome. They need to be congruent, not conflict with each other. We always remind um, folks to include retention periods, which needs to be at least six years for your policies and all of your logs associated with that. And then how are you going to manage these policies? Where are they at? So that employees can get to them. Make sure that they're accessible to all of your employees. We recommend online on your internet or in the cloud. I'll never forget one large practice that I was conducting an assessment at. Um, again, I understand many hats are worn. I was handed two binders and they asked me to promise to not lose them as it was their only set. We don't want anyone on this call to be in that position. Everyone in your organization should know where your security and privacy policies are and how to access them at any time. That's one of the reasons we highly recommend using a tool such as MedCurity. Yeah, I really appreciate that you emphasize the team aspect so that this doesn't all have to fall on one person. And I think the compliance mindset truly will come from um, allowing more people to have ownership in the process. And I know we have a couple customers um, who do a really good job of um, involving a team as they evaluate security practices and solutions. And so it's nice to see that 
the compliance mindset is growing and you can delegate to a team. And so this is a great place to start. So thank you for covering that. I do want to transition to a phrase we say a lot is privacy and security or security and privacy in the realm of HIPAA compliance. And it, this really applies to the policy piece. And so I want it to make sense for our for our listeners today. So Amanda, can you, starting with security policies, really outline what this entails when it comes to policies? Yes, I'd be delighted to. Again, so two slides on security policies. So the, these, this first one sets the stage for your overall HIPAA management policy and security management program, including ma how you're managing these policies and review frequencies. The security management process serves as a central policy document with which all workforce members and contractors must be familiar. Contractors, meaning business associates, state that you do an annual security risk assessment and how you will manage your mitigation plan, how you'll define security incidents and to whom to report these and include your information security system reviews, what will be tracked in those, such as login attempts. Your workforce security outlines the requirements to ensure all members of the workforce who should have access to EPHI have the appropriate level of access, the minimum necessary in which to do their job and not anything more than that. Sanctions really describe how discipline will be imposed uh, for individuals accessing, using, or disclosing sensitive information without the proper authorization. It outlines appropriate disciplinary actions for workforce members found in violation of inappropriate disclosures, as well as recommending levels uh, of violations, and then the associated disciplinary actions up to termination. So, one thing I always think about, while growing up, my son's least favorite word was consequences, uh, because I'd say, hey, if this happens, this is going to be the result. And I only had to do that a couple times, and he figured out I was serious. Um, so it's very similar. Let your employees know in advance the consequences of inappropriate and unauthorized access, use, and disclosures. And then in your security and awareness training, it deemed... Training is absolutely required, so you want to define methods that you will train your staff. You'll train them annually, and upon new hires, you want to train them immediately. And then you want to include things such as you will be sending out security reminders, how you manage your passwords, if you use strong passwords, um, phishing awareness, and then how should your employees report breaches. That should all be included in that. Workstation and device security includes many things, such as prohibited activities, bypassing security features on devices is absolutely a violation. What should employees do if they suspect phishing or potential virus? Who do they report that to? What are the steps they go through? You know, do they turn off their machine, unlock, uh, unplug it from the wall? Do you allow BYOD devices? And then device immediate controls. Um, how do you dispose of antiquated workstations and laptops? How do you secure them? What is the process you go through? And then include backups and storage. A few more policies in the security realm. So access management and controls. You want to document that you do use unique user IDs, that those will be used to track um, system logs, user activities, 
What are your password requirements? Talk about auto logoffs, that you, those will be implemented systematically. And then also you want to direct your workforce members to always do uh, control alt delete, lock their work or their their window when they walk away. Don't leave that screen open for unauthorized, potential unauthorized access. In this, you also may address your encryption methods and various audit controls. With facility access controls, you define how you limit physical access to your information systems. And then how do you secure your, your server closets, telecom closets, things like that. Data transmission integrity really will address uh, transition methods to protect PHI at rest, in transit, um, it sets a stage for encryption of sensitive information. And then the contingency plan is one that we find folks are sometimes a little bit uh, timid about addressing. It really outlines what your practice will do in various business impacting situations, such as loss of electricity, a cyber attack, a flu outbreak like we experienced this last year. Um, it would include data backup plans, disaster recovery plans, um, talk about drills. I mentioned earlier incorporating lessons learned. So you want to conduct drills so that your employees understand what to do in the event of a disaster. And you want to elicit their feedback after that because maybe there's some things that you can communicate and train better on. Also define workforce member roles. Who is able to declare an emergency? What role is that? With business associates, you want to outline the formal contract elements um, that for your business associate agreements. And you also want to say that, uh, declare where those business associate agreements will be kept, a central location is best, how often they'll be reviewed. And then for breach notifications, you want to make sure that everybody understands what to do in the event that they suspect a breach, how to handle it, who to report it to, how to contain the breach. Um, you want to process for investigations. Uh, how you notify individuals or patients, and if necessary, that you'll notify the Office of Civil Rights, which you need to do within 60 days if it impacts more than 500 people. Thank you, Amanda. I know it feels like a lot of information, but we definitely wanted to take a comprehensive approach because I think these days more than ever, we can't overlook any of these pieces because anything can be affected. Um, so that's how we're tailoring this approach to the webinar is being comprehensive, outlining all the details. Obviously, there are pieces behind each of those that were on the screen. Um, and this is such an important piece to your practice is the security, which I'm sure all of you are very aware of that. And then transitioning to the privacy side, I would say this is just as important and something that we do see um, a lot of the times, not all the time, is that um, there's the misconception that the notice of privacy practices is your privacy policy or your privacy program. And that's, like Amanda said, a great start, but it's not everything. So Amanda, just like you did for security policies, can you please jump into privacy policies and all of the categories that that entails? Yes. So the, as already mentioned, the notice and privacy practices for patients that outlines the type of information that will be collected, how it's used and not used as well as patient rights and obligations with respect to protected health information, including how patients can access and amend it. On a side note, HIPAA is really clear about this. A notice of privacy practices 
must be posted in the facility in a prominent place where patients can see it. It also must be on the provider's website if you have a website. And then also it needs to be available for patients in writing. Access to information outlines how you ensure patient rights are honored while maintaining the privacy and security of their information. And you wanna make sure that your employees know how to grant access to patients. Really important one to have documented. Uses and disclosures, uh, really, uh, the rule says if it's for treatment, payment, and operations, that's understandable, and you don't need to document that. However, there needs to be a process for disclosures outside of this. So your organization must maintain an accounting of disclosures of PHI to external individuals or organizations with certain exceptions. Additional caution is demanded by um, cases of use and disclosure from psychotherapy notes, records of substance use disorders. These cases re uh, require patient authorization to be obtained before such uses and disclosures are appropriate. Minimum necessary is really what it says. It defines reasonable safeguards to limit a user's access to only that information which they need to conduct their job. Workforce members shall not access the protected health information of any patient, including themselves, a coworker, a relative, or friend that they do not require for the performance of their roles and responsibilities. Really good thing to have in your minimum necessary policy. The designated record set really uh, is a method to define the medical information that patients have a right to access, and it is typically like the chart summary for the electronic health record. You can declare what's included and what is not included, such as psychotherapy notes. Social media is another one that we see uh, not necessarily addressed. And in this age, it's really important. So if you have like a face, for instance, if you have a Facebook page for your organization and a patient comments, hey, I received amazing care at your practice. Um, you might think that that's a consent to let everybody know that they are a patient, but that's not true unless they have signed a consent form. So you want to train your employees to not respond on social media to patient comments unless you have that consent. And then this last year really increased the need for remote work policies as well as telemedicine and telehealth policies. So for remote work, we recommend staff acknowledge requirements such as from working, for working from home, such as working space, response times, um, if they're going to access your office systems via VPN. Also for telehealth and telemedicine, um, you want to have, of course, HIPAA compliance transmission tools. It will define what PHI will be transmitted. And it's really important that prior to the first telemedicine encounter that you have a patient consent to be treated that way. Excellent, thank you, Amanda. There are so many pieces of this um, set with privacy policies that applies to our last year in such um, a comprehensive way. So I hope there are um, wonderful takeaways from especially the telemedicine piece um, and the remote work piece. Um, something that we also wanna make sure that we cover are best practices. So obviously this is a lot of information and it can feel um, maybe irrelevant for your practice, but we are big proponents of right-sizing it for your organization. And so we want it to match what you're doing and we want it to match your environment as that's the, that's the best practice with HIPAA compliance. So Amanda's 
can you help this make sense for um, individual practices and the best way they can go about doing that? It, certainly. Um, these are some best practices that we recommend to hospitals and practices. Um, and you mentioned it already, to right-size it for your organization, to not adopt another practice or hospital's practices wholesale. You want to evaluate them and make sure that they're reasonable and appropriate for your organization. With policies, you want, to, you want to have the policies in line with the security and privacy safeguards. You want to have practices that are appropriate for your organization, and you want your policy to reflect your practices and your practices to reflect your policy. And then it's very important that you have evidence that you're doing what those policies say. You want to eliminate any redundancies between policies because it might put you in a situation where um, if, the, if you change one policy, it could get out of sync with the other policy, and then your employees may not know which way, which one to follow. Conduct drills throughout the year validating that your policies still make sense, and collect those lessons learned, apply them, and adjust your policies. Um, Policies are meant to be tailorable and to be able to, to move as technology moves and your practices move, environments change. Conduct periodic walkthroughs. This is a really important thing. Have those walkthroughs be random throughout your organization and check for things such as um, people walking away from their desktops and leaving their monitors open to a chart. Um, seeing if passwords are on a sticky note underneath the keyboard, things like that. So it, it's really important for your employees to know that you're doing that because then there, it helps create that culture of compliance. Do information system audits according to the cadence you set. So if you declare you're going to do it quarterly, make sure you do it at least quarterly and that you have documentation that you have been doing these chart audits or different types of information system audits. I mentioned earlier, retain your documentation for six years. Even if your policies have gone through a series of changes, you need to be able to go back to what policy you had in place six years ago and educate your staff to your policy so they understand where to go and what they say. I'm always thankful that you end on educate because it's a great transitioner to the next piece that we wanted to cover when it comes to training and awareness. And something that I really do love to emphasize when it comes to our policies is that it's it should be used as a tool to train your employees. The content of it should be succinct and um, help everyone understand what they need to be doing. It can also be used as a way for them to look for answers instead of just coming and asking you. But regardless, educating employees on policies is so helpful um, and the beginning of your training and security awareness program. So moving into what training and awareness looks like for these practices. Amanda, can you speak to that? Yes. Um, so training, first of all, it's mandatory. It's not optional for organizations. Um, the HIPAA privacy and security rule both say it's mandatory. It should be conducted at least annually, and uh, new employees should be trained uh, within, like, 14 days of hire, or what's reason within that 14 day is what I would recommend. And then also to continue to do security reminders throughout the year. Um, and we have some tips coming up on that. So HIPAA, or pardon me, it, HIPAA is flexible on implementation. It says training should be provided as reasonable and appropriate for members of the workforce to carry out their functions. 
So to have it be role-based is important too. So all employees don't need to necessarily have compliance officer training. So that's one reason why at MedCurity we offer general employee training, compliance officer training, business associate training, for example. So I mentioned all new employees must be trained upon hire and at least annually. Uh, after any changes in practices, technology, or guidelines. So if you change um, electronic health records, really good idea to re-educate your employees, not only on how to use the system, but any safeguards surrounding that system. Uh, consider including shorter refresher training throughout the year. Cyber criminals frequently change their tactics, techniques, and procedures. Employees should be made aware of the latest threats targeting healthcare employees, and then have training on how to recognize phishing emails or other threats. Not only is security awareness training important for HIPAA compliance, it also helps prevent costly data breaches and regulatory fines. So I highly recommend that you leverage ransomware events as reminders. I appreciate that you touched on what makes training effective or the types of training that make it effective. Um, so moving into specifically the privacy and security pieces of training, um, what needs to actually be covered to be sufficient privacy and security awareness training? So this is a list of uh, items that we recommend that you include in your privacy training. HIPAA itself states the training is actually not about HIPAA, but about an organization's policies and procedures with respect to protected health information. Um, HIPAA doesn't require people become experts on HIPAA. It requires people understand what they are supposed to do and what they are not supposed to do. It requires that training is relevant for people's jobs. The most common and important part of HIPAA privacy topics to train about include how to identify PHI, minimum necessary, you know, what, what data should I have access to, what not, to not go snooping, um, the importance of confidentiality, uh, the need to keep an accounting of disclosures for your organization. What are patient rights and what documentation do they need to fill out in order to access information or do they need to fill out information? Also, for those employees in your organization that work with business associates, it's good to make sure that they understand what obligations those business associates have. And then also, you should include sanctions. Uh, what are the consequences of violating um, access to PHI? Um, and how employees can be penalized as well um, by the organizations and then also by civil and criminal penalties under HIPAA and perhaps under state law. And then moving on to security training. Again, this is these are the elements that we recommend that you include. Um, include methods for protection from malicious software and how to guard against, detect, and report malicious software. Include password management for your organization. There are procedures for creating, changing, and safeguarding passwords. And I can't emphasize enough to lock workstations every time they leave their desk. Help them understand how to identify a breach and how to report it to you. You know, train them on not clicking links in uh, suspect emails. That, that is a huge issue. People need to understand broadly that they pay, play a big role in data security. They need to learn about social engineering, including phishing, the dangers from websites and email attachments, the use of portable devices, 
and what to do when something seems suspicious. Training must be understood, remembered, and followed. Many incidents aren't due to people not knowing what they did was careless or wrong. It can simply be due to people just being very busy wearing many hats. They're trying to get everything done, and following HIPAA can be inconvenient and cumbersome at times. So training must make people care. Excellent, Amanda. I know policies and training often feel like another box that needs to be checked under your list of annual things that need to be done, but ultimately there is a lot of value and strategy behind doing these aspects correctly with HIPAA compliance and is ultimately the entire heart behind these requirements from the government. They want them to be used as tools, not just as boxes that need to be checked. Um, so with that, we do hear things similarly to policies in the field um, that oftentimes are not accurate. So Amanda, can you touch on a couple of these? Yeah, so some common training myths. Business associates don't need HIPAA training. Well, a business associate are those that create, receive, maintain, or transmit PHI, and training is absolutely required for business associates. And I'd like to emphasize that you ensure your business associates are conducting HIPAA training for their staff, for those that are especially that are touching your information. Ask them for evidence that they are doing this, that they are providing training. Um, annual HIPAA training is great. However, we need to help promote creating a culture of compliance. So leverage those current cyber events going on. Use them as opportunities to train and remind staff. One thing that I've seen some organizations do is they may take turns at like a monthly staff meeting, letting somebody else kind of lead a five-minute HIPAA training reminder so it kind of passes the wealth around. And when you're teaching something, you need to really understand it. So it helps emphasize their knowledge on that as well. So rules change, technologies change, and risks change all the time. So don't use the same training video year over year. Training needs to be applicable and relevant and updated. Perfect. So the framework is set. Our myths have been debunked. Amanda, what are some best practices behind training? Awesome. So we we recommend keeping your training short and sweet, that they last no longer than an hour. Periodic refreshers are suggested and highly recommended. Um, Increase the consequences of HIPAA breaches in the training, not just the financial implications, but implications for um, colleagues and, and, and other employees. Um, don't quote long passages of text from HIPAA guidebooks or regulations. We recommend using multimedia presentations to make the training memorable. Um, HIPAA compliance training not only has to be absorbed, it has to be understood and followed and make people care, as I mentioned earlier. So make it fun. Slight plug for MedCurity in our training. We did that in our training. We have some kind of fun videos in there that are a little bit campy, but also it helps people remember what not to do and what to do. So include all layers of your organization, senior management, as well as physicians. You want your employees to see that upper management and physicians are taking HIPAA compliance seriously. They will if they see you do. And don't forget to document your training. In the event of an OCR investigation or audit, it's important to be able to produce the content of the training as well as when it was administered and who, who took it. Consider providing HIPAA training online um, so that employees can work it into their work schedule as well and do provide regular security awareness training. It only helps emphasize a 
culture of compliance, and it can reduce the risk of data breaches. Great. I know there are some interesting articles that have come out around these aspects of HIPAA. So as we begin to wrap up, I know I get wonderful perspective from some examples and context around what we've been learning. So Amanda, can you share a couple of those articles you've seen? Yeah, we follow the OCR settlements because it really gives us um, information on what the OCR is focusing on, maybe what they're frustrated. One thing I want to emphasize is that if there is a breach and the OCR decides to investigate, when they come to investigate, they look at everything in your HIPAA compliance, security, and privacy programs. So in this instance, there was an organization known as Agape Health who reported a breach affecting 1,263 patients in 2011. The OCR launched an audit. And in that audit, they looked at everything, as I mentioned, and they saw longstanding systemic noncompliance of the HIPAA security rule. The provider failed to conduct a risk assessment, did not implement any HIPAA security rule policies or procedures, and neglected to provide its workforce with security awareness training until 2016. I don't know if you caught it, but this breach was reported in 2011. It took this organization five years to conduct their first HIPAA training. Um, a requirement of HIPAA is that if you do have a breach, you also need to do an immediate security risk assessment, and that was not done in this case either. So we look at the quotes in these by the OCR. In this case, Roger Silverino said healthcare providers owe it to their patients to comply with HIPAA rules. When informed of potential HIPAA violations, providers owe it to their patients to quickly address problem areas and to safeguard individuals' health information. So in the settlement, the OCR directed Agape to conduct an accurate and thorough security risk assessment. As I mentioned earlier, the provider also must submit its training material for review, and then within 30 days of approval from HHS, they are required to conduct security training for all of their workforce members. So the OCR can become your best friend for a couple of years after the settlement. Another breach I wanted to chat about was uh, a higher penalty one for sure. This had to do, it was a large healthcare system that included covered entities and business associates. A laptop was stolen and Lifespan, who this organization is, said the employees' work emails may have, may have been cached in a file on the device's hard drive. And it revealed that the thieves had access to patient names, medical record numbers, and a lot of other PHI that may have included patients seen at Lifespan's hospital, Lifespan's pharmacies, and other affiliated pharmacies and hospitals. The investigation said that Lifespan failed to have encryption policies for devices and to encrypt ePHI on laptops, and get this, after Lifespan determined it was reasonable and appropriate to do so. So they had further, you know, prior said that they needed to do this and they didn't do it. So that is one reason why the penalty was so large. The quote in this one from Roger Severino, laptop, cell phones, and other mobile devices are stolen every day. That's a hard reality. Covered entities can best protect their patients' data by encrypting mobile devices to thwart thieves. So beyond the million-dollar monetary settlement, Lifespan will implement a corrective action plan that includes two years of monitoring. So we share these two examples because we don't want any of these types of occurrences to happen to you. So Ari, please share how we at MedCurity can help. 
Excellent transition. Thank you, Amanda. I think it, we would be kicking ourselves if we didn't speak to these topics. They are our expertise. It's what we consult on and it's what our platform was developed to address. Um, our industry understanding allows us to keep our platform relevant to where the Office of Civil Rights is looking and penalizing. And so um, by sharing those examples, we want to give you context as to why we've developed what we've developed. Um, so with that, we support all areas of HIPAA compliance, particularly with what we covered today with policies. We have intentionally created a policy builder that not only has the policies that are expected when it comes to privacy and security, but it also outlines all the rules and requirements we just walked through. Um, but in this next image, you can see how simple it is to truly make these unique to organizations. And we did that on purpose, on purpose, excuse me, because we know how important that piece is. Beyond policies, we have created engaging trainings for compliance officers, as well as employees and business associates, depending on what where your need lies. And as Amanda mentioned, having the different levels is really important. Um, and you can see in this image from an admin level where your employees are at with training. So it gives you this awesome visibility into what's going on and maybe who needs a bit more attention. So that's all I'm going to really briefly touch on, but please let us know if you have any questions about what else we do. I did briefly mention the security risk analysis and our business associate agreement module, but we are happy to show you more in depth what we do, but ultimately it is our um, pride and joy to share these kinds of topics because we want to make sure that we um, are being a resource to you as a healthcare community.